I think your husband missed you. Just a little bit. Uh, you ready? Okay. So this morning is June 14th. It's 2009. I probably forgot all of our announcements. Uh, I know that Mario's graduating soon, right after church. See uh, him. He's got like a verbal invitation, maybe some directions for you if you'd like to go. We have a men's meeting today. Uh, Brother Bob back there is going to preach about the power of God. And uh, that's a good thing. It's at Steve's house. There is a ladies' meeting next Friday. This, this coming Friday. Where at? Here. Here. Here at 7. And a lot of good things are happening in the kingdom. I want you to turn to Exodus 30. Our message this morning is called Jericho Bites. B-I-T-E-S. Bites. Like bite size. It's not the ugly slang, slang term that kids use. We're not saying that Jericho's bad. We're talking about biting something. Literally. Y'all awake? Yes. Yeah. You don't know what to do with that title, I understand. I don't know what to do with them either. They get stuck in my head and I just go with them. So you're ready for Exodus 30? Yes. In Exodus 30, starting with the 11th verse, we want you to see something. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moshe, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. A ransom would have to be paid or a plague was already decreed. This sounds a little bit like John 3. Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. There is already a plague, a plague of death upon mankind. But here in Israel we have a setting where a ransom could be paid and then the plague would cease. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel which weighs 20 geras. It's about a fifth of an ounce of silver. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel and the poor are not to give less. No graduated taxation scales. When you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives, this offering would atone for their lives and you need to get the picture here. Moses and Aaron are standing before the people. They put all of the people on one side of the camp. We could guess which side if you like. That's just for argument's sake, say the left side. A ransom would be paid. And one at a time as a ransom of silver, the redemptive metal of the Bible, was paid. They crossed over to the other side that would be called numbered with those living. If to be on the left side was to be in death, to be on the right side was to be in life. If one side was a curse, the other side was a blessing. This was symbolic in so many facets of what Israel was to experience. The night they pass through Egypt, death passes them over. They cross from death into a life that is obedience in following Jesus. Census were an interesting thing. God was very 
peculiar in the way that he wanted a census done. He lays down very strict guidelines, and when they're not followed, he becomes angry. Anybody want to guess how many times in Israel's history a census was ordered? Nobody wanted to guess, huh? Once. Six times. Watch this. There were six of these censuses. That's a nice word. In Israel's history. In Exodus 38, 26, at the inception of Israel's history, a census was taken. The money was used to build all of the things that would accompany the tent of meeting and uh, the ark and all of those things. In Numbers 1, 1 through 2, a census was taken. And this was prior to the conquest of Canaan to number exactly how many fighting men there would be. Each time this is a reaffirmation that you have crossed from death to life, that your life is no longer yours, it has been ransomed so that it belongs to the Lord. In Numbers 26, 38 years later, because all of the previous generation had died, they had to re-ascertain the number of fighting men. It's an interesting note there, and I don't want to preach about this at this point in the message. But wouldn't you think that if you took a census in Israel two years after the Exodus, and then you took another one 38 years after the Exodus, I'm sorry, 40 years, 38 years later, that the number would have grown? It didn't. It shrunk by 1,870 men. Joshua 5.7 said that God had to raise up sons to replace their fathers who would not cross over the Jordan and go into the land. God had ordained a specific number of people. He had purchased them by name, one at a time, crossing from death to life, and said, you belong to me. But when they reached the waters of the Jordan, they refused to go. And so he said, although you belong to me, since you saw all of these miracles, since you saw all of these things, not one of you is going to survive to inherit the good things that I promised. Then, after 38 years goes by, a new generation that had never seen those things has to be counted. And there were 1,870 of them less. Friends, whether we were speaking about Korah's rebellion last Wednesday, or we're speaking about this event today, if you do not do what God called you to, He must raise up somebody who will. And the kingdom of God suffers loss. It took 38 years to raise up an equivalent number, and even then, it was less. How many of you would like to go to war with 2,000 less soldiers than you should have? And yet, God is able to make it work. So no matter what we have, our resources are not the problem, but individual obedience is very much the problem. Moving on from Numbers 26. When you get to 1 Chronicles 21, which I, you don't need to turn to, it's the time of David's census. Something that God was angry about, but nevertheless a monarch in Israel ordered a census. In 1 Kings 5 and 2 Chronicles 2, Solomon completed David's census and added to it. He added to it this number of Gentiles who were working in the Lord's service. They were numbered among the Israelites during the reign of Solomon for the first time Gentiles were numbered with Israelites. Does that not interest you at all? Mm-hmm. It should. That's what you are. In Ezra, the second chapter, we have our sixth and final census ordered in Israel's history. This is after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra wanted to know simply, how many of us are left? 
And how do we how do we handle the ancestral lands? Six in the Bible is the number of man. What is seven the number of? Perfection, God, completion, all kinds of good things. Do you think that there will ever be a monarch in Israel that will order another census? An Israeli king who will order another census? Our king will stand. He will divide the people as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. He will move some from the left to the right and others from the right to the left according to what they have done. When he sets up his kingdom in Israel, there will be yet another census and some will be the ransomed of the Lord and some will not. Not everybody who traveled with Israel was Israel. I want to find myself in the number of the faithful, in the community of the living, in the literal prince with God. Anybody in here got a half shekel today? 20 garrets of silver hanging out in your pockets? You know? Matt wears these kind of chains down here, the Mr. T starter kit. <laughs> that was gold though, not silver. I, I got to thinking about this. Well, what if I had to come up with 20 garrets of silver and I started trying to figure out how much it was and I got distracted? doesn't matter how much it is. The point is, is nobody in here brought them, huh? I mean, you didn't hear from God wake up this morning and go purchase 20 pure silver garrets, half shuffle, a fifth of an ounce of silver and put it in your pocket, did you? Turn with me to John 5. Tell me when you're there. there. Two of you. Three of you. Been there. Been there. In John 5, pick up with me in the 21st verse. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Saints, in Jesus, our ransom is paid. You are already on the left side of God, the goat side. You are already on the side that is under a plague called death. But when we begin to trust in Jesus, it is as if a price of silver, a price of redemption were being offered on your behalf right then and you are numbered in the prince with God, the number of the faithful, those who are living. It only comes in trusting Him, and it is considered to be delivered from death and in life. But let me ask you something. A whole generation of people did this. They did it as soon as they came out of Egypt. They were baptized in the Red Sea. They crossed over the Red Sea. They crossed over in the census. They crossed over literally and spiritually into life and never obtained what was promised. I don't want to be in that group. I don't want to be in that group. Turn with me to Luke 3. You know, while you're turning to Luke 3, I just thought we'd hit this while we're in the New Testament because we won't be there long. 
I thought I could go ahead and tell you something. 76% of Americans who are polled, 76%, I promise I'm not making it up, believe that they're going to a place called heaven. Does that surprise you? 76% when asked said, yes, I believe that I'm going to heaven. They didn't answer, there is no heaven. They didn't answer, uh, when you die, nothing happens. They didn't answer that they would be reincarnated. They didn't answer any of those things. They said they believe they're going to heaven. More than 50% who answered that very same question expressed serious doubt about whether their neighbor was going to heaven. What does that tell you? What does that tell you when 76% of the people say, Yes, I will inherit eternal life. But I don't know about these guys. That means that we have focused entirely on something that is intangible and that you cannot see. I believe, based on no evidence, that I'm going to heaven. I'm not sure they are because I see no evidence that they're numbered with the righteous. Do you understand the inherent problem in these statistics? Why would 76% of the people claim that they were in the kingdom of God and yet more than 50% think each other weren't? How does that happen? It happens when you have a group of people that value what they believe more than what they do. It happens when you begin to proclaim that something is a certain kind of fruit tree despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Do you believe that you're an apple tree? Yes, I do. 76 out of 100 of us are apple trees. Do you think the guy on your left and right is? Probably not. How does that work? It works when the nation has been deceived. And it's been deceived in its affluence. It's been deceived in prosperity. It's been deceived because it has no real need. It doesn't face plague, death, or pestilence every day. When's the last time any of us had to hold someone while they were dying. We've done everything that we can to push it as far from our lives as we can. We send our loved ones off somewhere else. They die in hospitals, in nursing homes. If you face this on a daily basis and it touched your lives, if it hurt you the way that it has some of our saints this morning who have heard loved ones have died, if you had to bury grandma and grandpa if you had to hold your spouse like some of my friends have done and watch them die you would cry out day and night to be delivered from this pestilence you would not stand with 76 out of 100 people that say I'm going to heaven but there is no evidence you would want to make sure that your calling and election were sure and you would not tolerate those who didn't because it would mean something the reason all of our sick are in hospitals, all of our old people are in nursing homes, and we never, we call in anybody else to deal with it, is because we're insulating ourselves from the truth in the name of convenience and prosperity. Well, that's difficult, isn't it? It doesn't have to stay that way. Are you in Luke 3? Yes. yes. Look what happens in Luke 3. <laughs> Starting in verse 3. Speaking of John the baptizer. Not John the Baptist, but John the baptizer. If you prefer John the immerser. He went into all the country around the Jordan. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He is preaching to a group of people that believe that they are saved by virtue of their birthright. 
by virtue of their actions. And he is telling them, turn around so that you can be forgiven. This is the message that America needs. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked paths shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see the salvation of God. He speaks of a complete readjustment of everything that you know to prepare for God. In what way has your life been readjusted so that you might see God move? We want God to move, but we want Him to move on our own terms. We want God to move, but only within the window of opportunity that we have allowed for Him. Lord, while we have gathered during these 15 minutes to pray, please come down. We order spiritual things like you order food at Burger King, and we want it our way. The Bible speaks of God moving among mankind when everything in the creation has been readjusted so that His presence can move in it. What have you readjusted in your life? When did you suffer loss? When did you throw away something valuable in the name of the Lord? When did you hurt for Him? Not simply for the sake of hurting, but because He was worth it and you wanted Him to know. A good friend of mine got born again and six months later he was still hanging on to a stash of pot. And he was hanging on to it because it wasn't any regular pot. I mean, it was good pot. And uh, he'd been saving it for a special day. And uh, six months into this, right, you'd think God would have got hold of him faster, but all I can tell you is it was special pot. And uh, he was praying and God began to deal with it. And he said, get rid of that. So he's thinking he could sell it. Because it's worth a lot. And he meditated on that for a while and decided he couldn't sell it. And then he thought, well, at least could give it to somebody that would really value it. Right? I mean, because this is good pot. So one of the hardest things he ever did was get on his knees before the toilet and throw away his most valuable possession, his pot. But he said he never felt closer to Jesus at any point in his life than that moment. Now somebody else might not value that at all. To me it's disgusting, right? Even in brownies it wouldn't be good. <laughs> to him, it was a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord. I want to tell you there is no sacrifice that you can make, not one that is not pleasing to the Lord if it comes from that kind of heart and desire. So, but I don't know if God requires it. Don't let that be an excuse to not do what you know He's told you to do. Watch this. John said to the crowds coming out to Him to be baptized, You are a champion. God, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by Him, I have donuts and pizza for you. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, we built a whole new arena for your children to play and be entertained. And church will be fun and there's a coffee shop in the lobby. This was not the message that God chose to herald Jesus. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, 
God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These people thought they were saved and he said this to them. What do you think he would say to the American church? You know the same magazine that published that other study said 80% of the evangelical pastors admitted to struggling with porn at least once in the year. Haiti. Haiti. Eight zero percent evangelical pastors. We want to meet with God on our own terms. We want a temple to Baal hidden in our life on the hills. And we want a temple to God out front where everybody can see in our Christian bumpers. You must be willing to push every high place low, every low place high, and rearrange your entire life. We don't meet with God on our terms. We meet with Him on His terms. The response from the crowd is Jewish to the core. What should we believe? What is your doctrinal statement? What is the minimum we must do to be saved? What do I have to do to be allowed to take communion in your church? What do I have to do so everybody will know I'm okay and you're okay and we won't bother each other, we're all just champions? Their response is, what should we do then? And it tells them something to do. This happens three times. Where did John go to baptize? Because this is really important. It's where we're going with our message. He went to the region surrounding the Jordan. I I got to thinking about that. The region surrounding the Jordan. What region is that? The Jordan River runs almost 200 miles from the northernmost tip of Israel to the southernmost tip of Israel. It starts at Mount Hermon, which is considered a source of life, life-giving water, melting snows, all kind of beautiful things. And it goes all the way from life, descends 2,350 feet down into the Salt Sea, the lowest place on the planet Earth that we call the Dead Sea. The Jordan River literally runs from life to death, from north to south, and he went to the region surrounding the Jordan River to preach. Well, what region is that? That's all of Israel, but he always kept the Jordan River in view. I wonder why. Why keep the Jordan River in view? Jordan means descender. It's hey, yardin. Hey in, in Hebrew is a article, means the. Never is it called Jordan River, although your NIV says that. It is always called the Jordan because it is uh, emphasized. It's like saying the president as opposed to a president, right? It's always emphasized. It's given a place of preeminence. In the smallest places, the Jordan River is not much wider than our parking lot. It looks like the Amy River in Louisiana. But at flood stage, it's often over a mile wide. It looks like the Mississippi River in those cases. In Numbers 14, I alluded to it earlier, is the site of very, very severe judgment. It was standing at the edge of the Jordan River that the Israelites refused to cross, although they were God's possession, that an entire generation of some 600,000 men were given a death sentence. It's also the site of awesome salvation. Because a generation later, some 600,000 men with their wives, their children, and everything with them did cross it and entered into a land that God was blessing. Think about the Jordan then as the backdrop for all of John's preaching. 
It is both a curse and a blessing. It is a double-edged sword. It's a little bit like the bronze serpent that is lifted up. How many of you would be excited to look at a bronze snake? It was a symbol of what was eating mankind right then. In Numbers, when they lift up the bronze snake, it is what has been biting people and they are dying. But if you looked up to it and you were healed because of that act of faith, then what looks like sin would become a symbol of life to you. It's funny how dichotomous the views of the Jordan, the cross, the bronze serpent, the day of the Lord, and the Word of God can be. Depending on your perspective, they can be great and glorious, or they can be awesome and dreadful. But the difference is not that they change. It's that we change or are changed by them. John picked the Jordan River because it was synonymous with judgment. It was synonymous with salvation. It was the site of Israel's biggest failures and biggest successes. And he stood before the people and he said, you need to change. Just like so many years before when our forefathers came to this river. You have to decide whether you're going to trust God or you're going to go on pretending everything's okay and you're a champion. Can you imagine marching around 40 years in the desert knowing that your destiny is to die? You know that they got so discouraged they didn't circumcise their kids, which was part of the covenant? They got so discouraged they didn't celebrate Passover for 40 years in the desert? You know why they didn't celebrate Passover? How do you celebrate coming out of death and into life when you know you're not going to enter the life that God told you because of your disobedience? How do you do that? I guess you go hide in one of these giant churches. Can you imagine? Our king requires your obedience. John told us, the experiences at the river tell us, every place in your life that is high, God might squish low. And every place in your life that is low, He might exalt high. We must make level paths in our life for God to move. That means whether or not everybody agrees with you, if God says no, you say yes, sir. If God says yes, you say yes, sir. We do what He tells us to do. This is the meaning of the word Adonai. My master, my owner, my controller. One of my favorite facts about the Jordan River before we move on is it both begins and ends in Israel. It's an Israeli river. It's for the Israelis. From the beginning of it to the end of it. What did I say it symbolized? Both salvation and judgment? This is because Romans 1.16 says salvation is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Romans 2.9 says there will be judgment for every man who does wicked. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Salvation is just like the Jordan River. It begins and ends in Israel. I put a world map in my office. Some of you have been teasing me about that as you walk by. Our, our goal here is not to look presidential or to uh, exalt ourselves. It's to have a place to study for your benefit. But when you come by this map next time, I want you to notice something. There is a direction of movement on it. When you look at the things that occur in the Bible, they enter through the pro into the promised land from what is now Saudi Arabia from the east side. They're on the east and they move across the river to the west into the promised land. The problem with mankind is we're usually headed the wrong direction. When man is thrown out of the garden, do you remember what side he was put on? The east side. Cain goes to settle on the east side. Lot, when he looks up and sees 
The plain of Jordan is well watered. He moves to the east to settle. Man is always moving in the wrong direction. East has to do with destruction and worldliness. But the gospel moves westward. They cross from death, the east side, across the Jordan into life, the west side. The gospel leaves Jerusalem and it goes north and west. You get out a map and you look. Every church written to in the book of Revelation is north and west of Jerusalem. You are west of Jerusalem and all of what we call western civilization that has become, I hate the word, but Christendom is west of Jerusalem. The gospel has been moving from the east into the west for 2,000 years. You look at the journeys in the book of Acts. The only places that Paul was prevented from going were to the east. This is because the gospel always moves from a place in the east, destruction, to the place in the west that is life and it is circling the globe. Do you know what stands in the gospel's way now from completing its full track of beginning and ending in Israel? The stronghold that is places like China, Buddhist. The stronghold that is places like India, Hinduism. Strongholds that are places like Iran and Iraq. The stronghold of Islam. The three most satanic religions that have gripped the world all stand between the advance of the gospel moving westward around the globe and returning to Jerusalem. There is a method to what is not madness in God's plan. He is allowing every tribe, tongue, and nation to see the gospel. You can look at this map and chart the countries in the years in which they predominantly became Christian and you see a path growing around the globe. And it is coming back to Israel because salvation begins and ends in Israel. Turn with me to Numbers 14. That was a little bit of an aside, but every once in a while you need to know that. If you'd like to hear more about the movement in China and a back-to-Jerusalem type calling with the gospel, you ought to get Brother Yoon's book, The Heavenly Man. He has founded an organization of Chinese Christians that realize their responsibility to Israel. And all of their focus is going from Jerusalem east to all of those countries that have not yet received the gospel. And what American Christians are not willing to do, which is suffer, they are willing to do. So they're being imprisoned in Myanmar. They're being beheaded in Iran. In the Sudan and other Muslim strongholds. They're being crucified. But the gospel is advancing. They're willing to cross the Jordan. They're willing to go stand in the middle of both judgment and salvation for the benefit of their brothers while they all pass by. Hmm. Y'all in Numbers 14? I want you to hear how harsh this curse is. Starting in the 20th verse. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, And as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me, testing me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. It sounds a little bit like, I don't know, Matthew 21. Not everyone who said, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. Why are there volumes written on that verse that say everything in the world except this person is saved and disobedient 
and not saved. You know, it takes paragraphs to explain what something most obviously cannot mean. In other words, if you pick up this verse and you say this could not be talking to a Christian, it must in some way be talking to somebody who is not a believer, it'll take you pages and pages and pages to explain that. Because what is most obvious is that it was spoken to people who were considered sons of God, who had been in the census of Israel, who had been ransomed of the Lord, who had received the divine covenants and led by the pillar of fire. And they were told, if you don't do the will, it does not matter. But we say, hey, doesn't matter. 76% of us say we're going to heaven, although 50% of us doubt our neighbor is. Doesn't matter. In other words, we have stripped Christianity of all need to show your faith. Our doctrine has done it. Our appeasing of one another. Our refusal to call sin, sin, not just from a pulpit, but in each other's lives. When's the last time you told a good friend, I love you, brother, you need to stop that, that's sin. When's the last time you said that? Or had it said to you? Do you know that the Bible accords that as an act of love? The Bible says that kind of open rebuke is better than hidden love. David actually said, Oh, that a righteous man would strike me. It is a kindness. It is an oil on my head. When's the last time a righteous man struck you? And then what did you do? You think this is the domain of preachers only? You are your brother's keeper. Do you not care? No, we've just been so conditioned to say, I won't look deeply into their lives. They won't look deeply into my lives. We're all okay. Wasn't well, that praise and worship, Grant? Anybody want to go get some donuts? <laughs> These people were being fed by manna for 38 years while being disobed disobedient to God. 38 years. Kind of like sitting next to the pool of Siloam for 38 years but never getting healed. That can happen. It's happening all around us. All around us. The question is, will it happen to you? They refused to cross over. They were called of God. They were brought out by God. In fact, they even crossed the Red Sea with God. But when it came to the next crossing, they refused. And we find out in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. So God was displeased with them and struck every one of them except Caleb and Joshua dead in the desert. Would God be this bride? Are you kidding me? Who comes up with this stuff? You have to be buried in a seminary a very long time to come up with something as stupid as that. Have you never read Israel's history? God will refine. He will refine as somebody refines silver His people. You ever read that all Israel would be saved? You ever read that? Romans 11, 26. In fact, it's all of the Old Testament canon. But all Israel will be saved. The question is, what is all Israel? All Israel, the whole nation in a single day, went into the land. But before that happened, the previous 600 and some odd thousand unfaithful, who were not really Israel, died in the desert. There will be a day when all Israel will be saved. The question is, what is that day and what is all Israel? Is all the church saved? Well, everybody who is really the church will eventually. Yeah. But I assure you, not everybody in the crowd is. This is how 76% of the people can say they're saved. But more than 50% doubt their neighbor's salvation sitting left of them and right of them. I'm saved. There's just no evidence of it. I'm saved. Just don't look. I'm saved. Let's just pretend everything's okay, all right? 
If you thought your neighbor was literally on fire, would you pretend he wasn't? Would you just look the other way? If you could smell their flesh on fire, would you just go, oh well, praise God, teach their own. It's really a private matter. Religions for women and children. It really must come down to we don't believe that that's what's at stake, huh? I work with some people and I do everything that I can to be polite with them because I love them. I mean, I really do love them. But every once in a while you can tell you have that Bud Light moment. You know, I love you, man. And I said, hey, I can't help it. I know you don't believe what I do. But you need to consider if I'm right, the consequences for you are horrible and I care. It's fine. It always reduces us both to tears and we're guys. This is love. Love is to speak the truth. Love is not to go hide, stick your head in the sand, and pretend there is no war in the world. It will not save anyone. So in Numbers 26, which is where you need to be, because I have to move along if we're going to get to our message. What was the title? Jericho Bites. Yeah. Jericho-sized bites. In Numbers 26, Israel's in a specific place. This is 38 years after the last scripture I read you. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all of those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. So on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. Why does God keep taking a census? Well, these people were not alive during the last census. It is not enough that your mommy and daddy were saved. It's not enough, children. It is not enough that you've been around salvation. The Lord God will put you on one side of the camp, just as Exodus 30 said. He will make you stand in a position where you either trust Jesus and so your ransom price is paid and you're counted among the living, or you do not trust Jesus and you remain under a plague. He did it to every generation in some form or fashion. They all had their own crossings. Do you know not a man, woman, or child in this generation had seen any of the ten plagues in Egypt? None of them had experienced Passover. None of them had crossed through the Red Sea. Everybody who had all of those things was now dead. And it was this generation's turn to have their crossing over. What good does it do to be counted among those who are princes with God if you do not act like a prince with God? What good does it do to have a Christian t-shirt, bumper sticker, and cross if you don't do the things God tells you to do? It might even do more harm than good. Perhaps Elijah's message, stop wavering between two opinions, pick a side and get on it, would be appropriate. They're standing in Moab, which is east of Jericho, and they're contemplating crossing the Jordan. This is the site of Israel's largest failure. They're going to move west across it. Turn with me to Joshua 3. This is where all of our texts will come from, and God willing, I will not turn you all over the place after this, because I know it is so laborsome to have to go to Scriptures. It is the Scripture, but we are turning to Scriptures. My sister and I have this thing going, uh, you know the book Revelation? Not Revelations? Well, there is a similar error that people make with the word Scriptures. They say the Holy Scriptures. It is a singular canon of Scripture. cannot be divided. It is not divisible. 
It is one contiguous revelation. When you quote more than one scripture, suddenly you have scriptures. That probably doesn't matter to any of you, but I wanted you to get it right. We should talk sometime too about praying for people, not praying on them. That's ugly. We don't do that. All the people surrounded me and they were praying on me. Oh God, I hope not. Whole another list of prophesy and prophecy and how to spell them, but we'll, we'll do that another time because today we're going to learn about the anointed word of God and not grammar, right? I come from a family of teachers, and I'm the only one that did not uh, pursue that line of education. And I'm thankful for them. That's how we have this preschool next door. They came, actually, my father came into school, right? And he threw me out of it. <laughs> it's all right. He loved me, and he did what was right. A good father disciplines his son. Are y'all in Joshua 3? Yes. yes. I was speaking about high school, by the way. B.C. Not the headache powder. The life before Christ. In Joshua 3, starting in the first verse, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out uh, from an acacia grove and went to the Jordan. No jokes about why they left. Where they camped before crossing over. I want you to understand that they stopped at the foot of the proverbial cross. They stopped at the edge of the double-edged sword. They stopped right before the place where the greatest judgment and the greatest potential for salvation existed, and they camped. One thing that happens to us in churchianity is we don't allow people to camp at the cross. We don't allow them to consider the cost. Instead, we put our very best sales pitch and persuasion on. We talk to them in terms of all that Jesus can do for you and if you will just love Jesus, Jesus will do this and he'll do that and he'll pat you on the head and he'll tell you you're wonderful and he'll put a pink ribbon in your hair. And never do we stop and tell anybody what you need to do for Jesus. So we, they just need to hear that Jesus was saved. They just need to hear you know what else we need to hear? Your life belongs to him. And if he's not Lord of your life, he is not the Savior of your life. You can say He's ransomed you, but if you do not act like one ransomed, then you are not ransomed. I'm an NFL football player. Did y'all know that? I don't put on cleats. I don't wear a football. Occasionally I go to a game. I'm an NFL football player. There's not one of you in here that believes me. And yet when I stand here and say, I am Christ. I am a Christian. I am the Anointed One. Nobody looks for cleats or footballs. We just say, oh, that's kind of a personal matter. Who knows what he is in his heart? Are you kidding me? You really don't think that you can pick out a prince of the universe among common people? Do you really think that you cannot pick out those that have been given participation in the divine nature of God? Have we really sunk in so far that we don't think you can tell the difference between somebody who is filled with the spirit of the world and somebody who is filled with the spirit of God? And yet we've all been taught not to judge. Friends, examine the Scripture. That's not what it means. That's not at all what it means. We're fruit inspectors. You're commanded to know a teacher by his fruit. You're commanded to make right judgment. You're commanded to let your judgment flow from the Spirit. Corinthians 2 teaches it. You're not allowed to judge things by your natural eye. You're not allowed to pass judgment on another while you have a giant plank in your eye. So what we do is we all just say, let's not anybody point at anybody. 
let look, we're all good here. Like blind men, right? I saw a skit one time where there was an African-American man that he was blind from birth and he was never told that he was African-American. And he grew up to be a KKK leader. And the absurdity of that was humorous. And the day that he found out that he was black was an earth-shaking day. The church is just like that. We're wearing clothes and we don't even know what we're really supposed to be. When we get the revelation that every mountain must be brought low and every low place brought high, now we have something God can work with. But as long as we walk around deceived and nobody tells us, you know, uh, the things that you wear that you're professing, I don't know if it matches you. Then we walk around like idiots. Thank God He appointed some people in my life that slapped me right in the face with the word. I mean right in the face. If you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, you're alive. That's what the guy told me. I wanted to hit him. Which means that he did his job. I tried to hit him, actually. Uh, we were in Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from the Acacia Grove and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priest who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. What an amazing concept. God would be enthroned above the ark. And when he moved, we would move. We wouldn't form a committee and debate it. We wouldn't ask our moms and dads if they think it's a good idea. We wouldn't check for the approval or rule by a poll. When God moved, we would move. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. I want you to understand something. God does not lead you where you are comfortable to go. He does not take you on a path that you've been many times before so that you can walk in your own strength. Knowing what's around every turn requires no trust. But He will take you into the depths of your own insecurity. He will baptize you in humiliation so that you can follow His glory without being blinded by your own. The problem with so many of us who aspire to do something for Jesus is we are so big in our own eyes that there is no room left for God's glory. Jason Upton wrote an entire series of songs about this titled in a CD called Dying Star. And it is so good. wonder why it doesn't sell more. Keith Green wrote a song called Asleep in the Light. His closest friends tried to keep him from publishing it my favorite song, but for one reason or another it doesn't always make the best hits album. I wonder why. We've become so callous. We're mad at anybody who even tries to tell us we might be wrong. Our king wants to be at our head enthroned, leading us in places that nobody's gone before. We could have called it Star Trek, huh? Yeah. No, not really. Watch what happens next. They need to keep a distance. And in verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. Why don't we see more miracles here? Why don't we? Why don't we? What? But because we want to meet with God on our own terms. Consecration is when you meet with God on His terms. 
When you do whatever it takes to push high mountains low and low valleys high, whatever it takes to Teshuba, to reorder your life so that there's room for God's amazing things. Saints, what in your life might need to be reordered? They stood at the threshold ready to cross over and God said, pause here. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to lead. You will never have gone this way before, which means you'll have to trust me. This whole process begins with you consecrating yourself so that I can do amazing things. Mm. We have to be consecrated, saints. I know, that's a big word. Consecration is one of those church and ease words that, what does it mean? Let me give it to you in layman's terms. Stop what you're doing. Think about what God wants you to do. Mm. Commit yourself to it. Commit yourself to it. Come hell or high water, do exactly what He has said regardless of the cost. Mm. That's consecration. Mm. But I really want to go this. Do you want it bad enough to go to hell for it? But I really want to do this. Do you want that more than you love Jesus? Let's just put it in real terms. Mm -hmm. We don't do that to ourselves though. We try to have both. We want the temple in Samaria and the temple in Jerusalem. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. There is nowhere that you will ever go that your God has not been first. They're standing at waters of judgment, but who is headed into those waters ahead of them? The very presence of God. Just like He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, He was the serpent lifted up on the bronze pole. There is no one that has ever attempted something for God that God did not go and win the battle first for them. What's so funny is that they are intimidated by these waters. They don't want to do it because they're scared just like you and me. And when they move in faith, God cuts off the water before their feet even touch it. And it's usually that way. But we're so small in our own eyes when it comes to doing something for God. And so important in our own eyes when we justify not doing what he told us to do. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel. When the Lord is enthroned at your head, Jesus is exalted. You don't have to talk about him, although it's good to. You don't have to go out and witness and hand out tracts. When you go where you have never been before trusting him, and it's a perilous situation like the Jordan, where you will either be saved or killed. He is exalted because it shows trust, faith. Where is He calling you that you're scared to go? What is He telling you to abstain from that you just don't think you can let go? What is He telling you to embark on that you're just scared to do? Do you want Him to be exalted or do you want to continue to exalt yourself? And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. So they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go stand in the river. <laughs> Saints, when we do something for God, most of the time it's get in and get out. Fast as I can because it's so hard to do. Don't linger. You might make the devil mad. Where are the men who will go trusting God, not stick their toe in and wonder whether it will split, but we'll go set up camp in the middle of the river and show everybody the way to salvation. 
This is why God causes droughts. This is why He causes famines. This is why He allows there to be floodwaters in our lives because when you stand in the middle of it and yet do not perish, the world sees hope for salvation where they had only seen judgment before. Larry Burkett wrote a book called The Coming Economic Earthquake. Right now people might be wondering whether he was right. Probably rightly so. What a glorious opportunity. You can stand right in the middle of it and ravens will fly in your food. And you can smile and show people God's provision. But we're usually more focused on just getting the uh, heck out of here. If the church never endures anything difficult, where will their salvation be? And how will yours be proven? Do you respect Job because he was blessed before he was tested? Or do you respect Job because he hung in there and was blessed after he was tested? It wouldn't even be a book if we didn't have chapters after three. Right? wouldn't even be a book. But our lives. Oh, we know we're saved because we're so blessed. Really? Really? Is that the way that works? Well, it is if you watch TV. Of course, they have purple hair and thrones, too. I haven't figured that out. Thrones. Can you see Jesus sitting on a throne while teaching? He kind of did just the opposite, didn't he? No beauty or majesty to draw men to him. He wanted people to listen to his word, not be drawn to a marketing scheme. His word. They didn't escape, they stood in the river. Pick up with me here then in uh, 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord. Your God, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and that He will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Our king, whether crossing the Red Sea or Pharaoh pursuing from behind or now crossing the Jordan, always positions himself between you and danger. Always. When Pharaoh was pressing Israel from behind and they were trapped between the Red Sea and it, the pillar of fire moved between Pharaoh and the people. When they went into the Red Sea, he went first. Now they're about to cross the Jordan and the ark that is his presence goes first. You need to remember the king is not asking you to do anything that he has not personally done himself. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. When we're obedient to God and we show trust, that which would otherwise be judgment, like the cross, like the bronze serpent, like the day of the Lord, like the Passover, the angel of death passing over, that which would be judgment is cut off and becomes your salvation. You have crossed over. But it requires an act of faith. It requires obedience. Not simply sitting on your salvation claiming to go to heaven when your neighbor doubts it. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage during harvest. 
course it is. Of course it is. This means that the Jordan at this point could have been a mile wide to cross. Where normally it had been 100 feet. If you're having difficulty contemplating crossing a river that was 100 feet, how would you feel when you got to the edge of the river and it was a mile across? Get used to it. You know why? The Lord will call you to do things and it's almost like He reels you in. He will tell you, I want you to start a church but not show you what you will go through to get it. He will tell you to start a preschool but not show you what you will endure for it. Because, although you are dressed for battle, He leads you in a way that encourages you along the way so you do not become discouraged. He lets you face each battle as it comes to you. He's not trying to trick you. He's trying to move in proportion to your faith. Say, if I had known then, what I know now, I never would have done this. You should shut your mouth. You should absolutely stick your tongue to the top of your mouth. Praise God you didn't know because His grace sustains you here today. What you're saying is I never would have even tried to do what God said. Those words should never come out of our mouths and I have said them. It's a place for repentance in the church, isn't it? Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. Do you understand that the fire, the water, the peril, the pestilence never even got close to them? You realize that more than 600,000 men died in the desert because they wouldn't do this? And a generation later when their sons did it, the water never even got close to them? It piled up a heap a great distance away in a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarephan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba, the Salt Sea was completely cut off. So the people crossed over. Just as in Christ, we cross from death to life. And in a census, a price is paid. You cross over. This act of faith took them from the east, which was destruction in the desert, into the direction of God's moving and His flow, which was the path of life in the promised land. Opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. If you don't learn anything else during your time with me, you should sit down with me and learn Romans 9, 10, and 11. The whole nation will cross over from death to life, period. There is no salvation for you without all Israel being saved. It's their plan. Verse 1 of 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan... I can't read chapter 4 without time. We're going to pick up in 5, 9 here in just a second. But I want to tell you something. When you cross over, you are supposed to take from that experience a testimony. The kind of testimony that is as big as 12 giant stones that are stacked up, plastered, with inscriptions on them. The kind of testimony that would cause people to go, Mom, Dad, what happened in your life that you're now this way? This crossing was memorialized. A sign was set up to serve as a reminder for all generations what God had done. 
There are supposed to be events in our life where we see miraculous, unbelievable salvation that causes people to ask you questions. That doesn't sound like salvation happens in a corner, does it? Doesn't sound like your closest friends and family might not notice it, does it? Well, you know, salvation is a very private matter. Don't force your theology on me. Okay? Well, you hang out in Moab. You hang out in Moab. I'm going in with the people of God. That's just what your church believes. Really? Is that what it's come down to? It's come down to what an institution believes and not what the book says? Well, that's just your interpretation. Turn that book around and say, what is your interpretation? That's what I thought. Saints, it is time for there to be a bolt in your faith, in your face kind of faith. But you can't have the courage to do that if you're not really living it because you know. They'll see me as a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. That'll solve the problem. So, but we all sin. Yeah, but don't fight for the right to do that. Be righteous. Be perfect. Even as the king who called you is perfect. He's given you his character, his strength. This is how you can sit in the face of death and disaster and smile. Because inwardly we know we are winning. Turn with me to 5.9. How did y'all get such a long-winded preacher? When y'all hired the pastor search committee um, and brought me in from somewhere and examined my resume uh, because of my ability to vision cast and raise offerings. Uh, and I don't even know what else. My wardrobe, maybe. They must not have warned you. They must not have warned you that I, I lacked attention to detail on clock faces. <laughs> That's not how that works here. Do you mean that there are churches all over the globe that meet in humble, ordinary places that are not run by committees and men? They're run by God? Yeah, and they're ordinary housewives like the one I told you about before the message that are raising the dead. They're just not on TV selling books about it. What would you rather, a backpack ministry that really has God in it or a cathedral? where you have to have stained glass to substitute for His presence. I want His presence, and I don't care how crushed I need to be for that to happen. Hillel was a predecessor of Jesus, a great teacher. He said, my humiliation is my exaltation, and my exaltation is my humiliation. He understood. John the Baptist quotes him in a manner of speaking. He said, I must decrease that he may increase. This needs to be our goal. What river do you want me to cross, Lord? What mountain do you want me to climb? Lord, I'll take Jericho one bite at a time. Pick up with me in Joshua 5. We're going to touch on verse 9. Then the Lord said to Yehoshua, Yahshua, his name was actually Hoshea, it means salvation. Moses changed it to Yahweh's salvation, Yahshua. This is how we get the same word as Yeshua. They mean the exact same thing. Yahweh's salvation. Then Yahweh said to Yahshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. <laughs> it's funny. The uh, commentators, even the footnotes in my own Bible say, rolled away the reproach of Egypt. This must be because Egyptians didn't think God would actually bring them into the land and now there would be no reproach. It's funny though because that word reproach doesn't appear very many times in the Bible, this Hebrew word. It's 
Sherpa or Kerpa. One of the other places that it appears is Isaiah 25, 8, and it says, On this mountain in Israel, the Lord God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. He wipe away from every tear and remove the disgrace or reproach of his people. Death. See, it looked like they just crossed from Moab into uh, Jericho across the Jordan. It looked like they just went from the uh, east to the west, but in God's eyes, they just moved from death to life because they were obedient. And I want you to understand, all Israel promised their obedience at Mount Sinai. But now it's only their sons and daughters an entire generation later that are actually being obedient. One was pledged to life. The other actually found it. Kind of like a parable Jesus tells about two sons. The church shouldn't read that one much. And when we do, we try to say it must be the Jews. Right. Because nothing could ever apply to us that involves judgment. We're God's special people. We're Americans. I mean, if everybody on the globe that he would love, surely he loves us most. All of our Nintendo, our beautiful TVs. All of the attention that we give him, surely he loves us most. Those Christians that are suffering in China for his name and that are handwriting copies of, of the Bible because it's so precious to him, he couldn't love them. He'll let them suffer, but not us. How absurd does this get to be? But it will build the big church. And if I have trouble paying the rent here, I might could go that route. Of course, God will leave when the people show up. What would you rather? Would you rather see people healed of cancer and God show up? Or lots of people, fame and acclaim, but no power to heal? I'm not stupid. I know that his moving in our midst is not a blanket endorsement of everything that is Eric. He shares with me on a regular basis the things about Eric he doesn't like. I'm very well acquainted with them. But if I had to take a degree from a seminary, or, which is good, by the way, or I had to take a building, I don't know, somewhere on this road, in exchange for knowing that he's showing up in our midst and seeing the sick healed, I would never trade. Never. Never. It'd be like the kingdoms of the world when you could be the prince of the universe. Never. Don't trade that which is eternal for something that's fading in your life. Don't do it. Some good time that causes you to lose the favor of God. You know, I walked back into Walmart when I realized they didn't charge me for something that was less than $2 because the thought occurred to me that although it's just an inconvenience and I wasn't trying to steal it, I would never want to lose the favor of God over the idol that is my time. But we do that kind of stuff, don't we? God is going to make us aware of it because He's refining us. He's consecrating us. I told you to go to 5.9. He's rolling away the reproach. Look at 5.10. Gilgal, by the way, is a city that means He's rolled away the reproach. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho. They're on the good side now. The Israelites celebrated Passover. I want you to get this. What happens? They contemplate crossing over. This is salvation when they cross. The next thing that they do is they circumcise themselves. Renew their covenant with God. Now that they're saved, they renew their covenant with God. Then the feast schedule begins. It is amazing, amazing, beautiful symmetry in the Word. The very first thing they do in the Promised Land after renewing their covenant 
is to hold Passover. What did Passover celebrate? That's right, crossing over from death to life. Because even as their parents had experienced it, now they had experienced it. The reason Israel can say, we came out of Egypt today, is because every man is coming out of his own kind of Egypt. The reason we can say we are saved is not because we experienced the same peril our parents did, but our own unique brand. All of Christianity is this process. All of faith is this process. So they experience Passover. Passover and unleavened bread are really the same feast. They're crammed together and they experience them together. The next thing that happens is an angelic representative, some people think is the Lord, we're not going to argue about it today, shows up to show them the presence of God is with them when they are with Him. What was the feast after Passover and unleavened bread? Pentecost, when the presence of God showed up to be with the people. After the uh, Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, what's next? Rosh Hashanah, trumpets. Trumpets. The next story in this scenario is a story about the kingdom of the world falling at the blowing of seven trumpets, and when the last trumpet sounds, the kingdom of the world falls. See, this story repeats over and over and over in the Bible. It's cyclical. After the trumpets blow, we have our last feast, Yom Kippur, the seventh feast in the seventh month. And all Israel is atoned for. They've gotten their promised land. The feast schedule shows us what is happening in the world, but what's more important is that you learn to do this one bite at a time. So let's pick up in 6.1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Isn't it just like God to say He's delivered something before He's actually done it? He requires you to trust Him. He tells you that something will happen before it happens to see whether you will carry out His word. This is why right now it does not look like we can get licensed. Right now. Despair can set in. Discouragement can set in. But I know something that they don't know. He told me to do it. So how can I get worried about that? I'm not. Not even a little bit. But the whole world has just come to an end. I told everybody we're going to do this and we built this and what happens if it passes? That's what the devil always says. You know how many times I've knocked down that giant? I'm going to cut off this one's head like the last one and carry it around like a trophy. And when I'm an old man, you'll still be tired of hearing me tell stories about it. <coughs> March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing trumpets. When you hear the sound, them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. They did exactly what he told them to do. But to get a ram's horn, you need to understand, the king of the sheep, a ram, has to die. And then you have to do something. You have to pour out all the blood out of the horn. To get one of these shofars, there's blood and flesh in here. And they both have to be cut away. Then after you've shaped it and formed it, you have to breathe into it. God's Ruach, His Spirit, 
And when his spirit is introduced to the king of the sheep's authority, with no flesh to glory in it, and no blood left in it because it's been poured out in atonement, amazing things happen. The kingdom of the world falls. Saints, God did not tell them to march around armed for battle and slap everybody this week. He didn't tell them to put their best marketing campaign and just get them all to come into their churches. He actually had them silent except for the blowing of the shofar. Jesus' voice is the only one that needs to be heard. When His Spirit fills you and you're devoid of flesh, when you're devoid of all that would war against it, you've emptied yourself so that He might fill you, speak those words like an ambassador speaking the very appeal of God to people. He did this once every day for six days. You know, the Bible says a day is as a thousand years, and Peter reminded us that the psalm said that. Uh, Daniel says that there'd be a time in, in history when people would try to change the calendar. You know, we're in the Jewish year 5769 right now. In fact, today is Savan 22nd the month of Savan, the 22nd day. Of course, we have an entirely different calendar called a Greco-Roman calendar. But I'm sure it's the right one. They did this for six days. Man's number is six. It's the number of sin. It's the number of man. It's the number of man's reign in the Bible. And throughout man's reign, there would be a select group of people God would call priests, the same ones that stood in the river, the same ones that interceded for all the people till the whole nation had crossed, and they would use the authority of the king of the sheep, and they would make a loud announcement at least once every day. You go look through history, every thousand years there's been a man of God that shook the entire earth. At least one every thousand years. But on the seventh day, something special would happen as if all God's people had become priests. They marched around seven times, a perfect number. And when the shofars blew, they all used themselves like a shofar, having been emptied of self-determination, having been emptied of self-will, having been decreased so that He might increase. They breathed in deeply the Ruach, the Spirit of God, and they gave a Holy Ghost-filled shout. Every man his own testimony having all crossed from death to life, and the world as they knew it collapsed. And it became God's dominion. We are somewhere in this process, learning to speak when He said speak, and to hold our tongue when He says to hold our tongue, and we carry with us the testimony from the center of the river. I am one who has crossed over. One bite at a time, we will take this promised land. Say, so, well, I'm not facing a walled city like Jericho dedicated to the moon god. I don't know what to do. Oh, there is some situation in your life where you either need to be silent or speak for God. And it takes great courage to do either of the two. Find them. Identify them. Do you know when the city... I need to close. But when the city was destroyed... Joshua was so upset over the battle. He said, if this city is rebuilt, it will be at the cost of a man's firstborn son that its foundations will be laid. If its gates are ever set up again, 
it will be at the cost of a man's youngest son. This happens around 1600 BC. Around 900 BC in Ahab's time, think about that, how, how many years have passed where the city is desolate. Something happens. A man lays the foundation of the city and his oldest son dies. And he sets up the gates of the city. And his youngest son dies. And I read that and I thought, no, why would you let that happen? The kingdom of the world is never to be rebuilt. The kingdom of the world falls to the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Your word says it. It declares it. What, what is going on? And I looked up their names. Listen to this story the names tell. God who lives used the exalted father and lifted up his youngest son. And it was rebuilt. The man who did this name was Hail. His name means God who lives. His son who died, the older son who laid the foundation, was exalted father. His youngest son, Segub, means lifted up. And I found out something. God is definitely rebuilding the kingdom of the world. He's just calling it his own. He paid the price for its foundation of himself. He took a part of himself and put it in human being form. It was like his youngest and most cherished son and his firstborn son all in one and he lifted him up so that the gates of hell would not prevail against his city. It is going to be rebuilt but it is at great cost and it will be done God's way. But before he can build the city that he wants every man straight in we must first be obedient one bite at a time. Saints cross over cross over be done with sin. Be done with that way of life. Face Jericho. Consecrate yourself that you would see amazing things. Celebrate passing from death to life. And parade yourself in front of the rest of the human race as one who has passed from death to life. Speak when he says speak. Shut up. Shek it, the Hebrew word is. Shek it. That sounds better than shut up. Shek it when he says to shek it. And we will see the kingdom of this world fall one life at a time. That's what our ministry is about. We're going to start with one little kid at a time. Then move to their siblings. And then their parents and their grandparents. And it will work. Y'all stand to your feet. I'll eventually learn to take a message like this and put it in three parts. <laughs> But you're going to have to hang in there with me and be patient until I do. Yeah. yeah. So next time, if this becomes the census, the river, and Jericho, uh, it'll be good and you can take the message one bite at a time. But until then, we're going to stuff you till overflowing, expect you to retain more than anybody could possibly retain, and uh, show mercy for your pastor. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we love you. We're in awe of Your Word. Lord, we're both crushed by it and held together by it. Lord, we're convicted by it and we're compelled by it. I thank You for Your life-changing power that is Your Word. Lord, I pray that this group of people would never become numb to it. Lord God, that we would not fall asleep in the light. Lord, that these hearts would have baby skin on them ready to do Your will, ready to run to the chariot, ready, mighty God, to do Your will. 
Holy One, let us not be corrupted by religion or pride or self-sufficiency. Rid us of it, Lord God, that as we decrease, you might increase in our church and in our lives. Lord, we call heaven and earth as witnesses. Our desire is not to be lifted up, but to lift you up that you might build your kingdom. Lord, hold us to our word. Make us good to our pledge. Give us hearts that are wholly committed to you that we might see those amazing things in your name and you might be exalted in our midst. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.